Welcome to another episode of What is Global Health? In this podcast, we will chat with Dr. Stephen Morse, Professor of Epidemiology at the Mailman School of Public Health. His research focuses on risk assessment of infectious diseases and methods of improving early disease warning systems. He coined the term emerging viruses for his book, Emerging Viruses, which was selected by American scientists for its list of 100 top science books of the 20th century. Dr. Morris held faculty and leadership positions at Rockefeller University, the NIH, and National Biosecurity and Biomedical Policy Committees. Today's talk will focus on how viral infections originate and spread, what are preventative policies to control epidemics, and the 2020 novel coronavirus epidemic. So can you explain for viewers unfamiliar with your work, what is the concept of emergent viruses? Emerging viruses uh, really are, are those viruses that appear like the Andromeda strain that seem to come out of nowhere. And of course, you know, it, it took a while to solve that mystery to some degree. But uh, more officially, there is a, a, a more formal definition. Uh, an emerging infection is now one that uh, is rapidly spreading in number of cases, incidents, or geographic range, and that has not been seen, at least for a long time. And those that have been known before, uh, and perhaps due to lapses in control measures like immunization or mosquito control, which become victims of their own success. I tend, many people tend to call those, as I do, re-emerging infections. But the first time we saw SARS coronavirus, for example, that was an emerging infection. It, it was, seemed to be novel, and indeed it was to the human population, and was spreading both geographically in a number of cases. Right. So. Um, and also, can you give a quick rundown on how these viruses are spread, so between humans and between animals and humans? Yes, actually, initially, I, I was uh, trained as a microbiologist, and I was a lab virologist, and most of us microbiologists thought that these emerging infections were really, especially the viruses, which are known to mutate very rapidly, were really coming from the rapid mutation of viruses. And that sometimes happens, but you know, as I started to look into this, I was very surprised, actually, back in, in the ancient days of the last century, 1988, <laughs> I was very surprised to find out, as I think a lot of people knew, but no one had really compared their notes, that many of these emerging infections that are, seem novel in the human population are zoonotic. They're coming to us from other species, usually other vertebrates, and often other mammals. Uh, and uh, that seems very mundane, but in fact it's not, because there's a great variety of viruses and other uh, microbes that are out there in the great diversity of life, and some of them are unfamiliar to us. We've never seen them. And so the changes we make in the environment and, and other social and uh, ecological changes have a lot to do with precipitating the uh, transfer or some people like to say jumping species from the, a natural host carrying a particular infection that we haven't seen before to infect humans, perhaps for the first time. 
Yeah, and related to that topic, um, it's well known that viruses and bacteria mutate. And can you maybe explain a little bit how, how this process occurs and like what causes these viruses to mutate and infect people? Well, you know, when they infect people, usually what we see is that they're, they're usually quite similar to the ones that already exist in other species in nature, and they get an opportunity to infect people. And many of them, you know, really don't um, infect people, and we may never see them. But there are some that are successful. So we know that bats, for example, harbor a large diversity of coronaviruses. Coronaviruses have now become famous because of SARS in 2003, and now the uh, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which was first identified in 2012. And, and now, at this very moment, we have another coronavirus that looks very much like SARS, except unlike SARS, which spread almost completely through the healthcare setting, essentially through lapses in infection control, uh, which shows you that nobody can do this perfectly. It's really hard to do this perfectly because they had... Uh, even Toronto had a, a problem with SARS. Someone who came from Hong Kong picked it up there and then went back home to Toronto. And within the hospital setting, you know, it began to, to spread to healthcare workers and others. But in terms of mutation, we know that mutation gives us the uh, vast biodiversity of infections out there in other species. So mutation does play a real role, and the one place where it's most evident, actually, is with influenza. Now, I had a, an old professor and, and beloved colleague named Howard Tamman, who was one of my professors at the University of Wisconsin, where I got my PhD, and Howard, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on retroviruses, as they, they were not then called retroviruses. But um, Howard felt that my choosing influenza as an example of an emerging virus was kind of cheating, because it wasn't so novel. But if you want a virus that, that keeps changing through evolution, that jumps from one host to another that does unpredictable things. Influenza, mundane as it seems, is actually one of the most unpredictable of all. Um, so far, this coronavirus has, has not been very virulent. That is to say, it, it hasn't been as nasty as the other coronaviruses like SARS, to which it's closely related. It also spreads very well from person to person, more like influenza, maybe even a little better. Mm -hmm. So we obviously don't, don't want to find out whether, like influenza, it will have similar effects. I think, as we see in China, essentially it looks like an influenza pandemic. Um, you know, that is to say, a new strain of influenza or a new variety of influenza that's completely new to the human population at the time and therefore is able uh, and is also capable of average influenza transmission, maybe even a little less, but of reasonable transmission, and then becomes 
pandemic, one that essentially is an epidemic that spreads throughout the world because it's new to our immune systems and new to us. But basically, they all behave like influenza. And with all its mutations, when we get influenza, we pretty well recognize it. So, you know, the main differences are, are the mutations it makes in order to be able to fool our immune systems and reinfect us. But pandemics are whole new things. They come about by um, probably reassortment, mixing of genetic uh, sequences of genomes uh, between animal species. We know that waterfowl, migratory waterfowl, especially in the old world, are the natural reservoirs of influenza. They're the creatures that contain the, the vast um, variety of influenza viruses. And we think that very often pigs can be a mixing vessel because they tend to be more susceptible to getting even mild influenza infections. We're somewhat more resistant. But once it goes through the pig, it may be easier to get to people. And of course, the farmers right there taking care of their, their pigs. Um, and so new pandemics arise by a very different way, but once they get established and go through the world, you know, they um, calm down for a little while, and then they continue to circulate, and their progeny, the progeny of the last pandemic, becomes a seasonal influenza virus that makes smaller mutations, uh, basically in, in, a sur in surface proteins to fool our immune systems, because that's what we recognize, and reinfect. And, um, you know, although it has a fairly low influenza seasonally, has a fairly low case fatality rate, a fraction of a percent, maybe 0.1 or 0.2 percent, you can still have a lot of people infected, and of course people can be very severely infected. So, um, you know, influenza is not to be ignored, and it also has a lot of lessons to teach us. Right, exactly. So um, maybe can we talk a little bit more about how the SARS coronavirus and the, uh, the novel coronavirus that's happening right now, how are they different? You know, it's really quite interesting in terms of the coronaviruses. So we have complete sequences of a number of coronaviruses. SARS was the first one that got our attention, and it came uh, after investigation of a number of animal species. But in, it was very clear it had started in food markets in a number of places independently before it came to Hong Kong through an infected individual and spread throughout the world. But it came from these little bats, little horseshoe bats, sold in these live animal markets. And those little horseshoe bats happened to carry this coronavirus which we now know as the SARS coronavirus, and people became infected either directly or indirectly through another um, mammalian species. We're not quite sure, and some scientists think that we got it first and gave it to these other uh, mammals called uh, uh, Himalayan palm civets, which were a very prized food source. They're, they, they're sort of uh, about the size of a cat, and they're furry. They actually more closely related to weasels and, and ferrets. But, you know, whether we gave it to them or, or uh, they gave it to us, clearly it originally came from bats. And when they looked from a bat that had been in contact with us and with these ferrets, with these uh, civets, uh, 
in the uh, live animal markets because the civets were n not infected before you know we suddenly saw SARS happening and so we knew that it was coming from another animal species and that was that little horseshoe bat and um, SARS was, of course, very, very serious because it had a case, there were, you know, almost 9,000 cases with a case fatality ratio of uh, about 10% in those who were hospitalized. And that's very serious. Uh, that particular virus, interestingly enough, people went out then and looked for other related viruses that might exist in other or the same or other bad species, and they found a profusion of them. They're, they're, they fall into what we technically call group 2B of the uh, coronaviruses, and there are a large number of them, including quite a few that are very closely related to SARS, and some that had been found shortly after SARS when people really started looking for them. We had the technology to do it, which didn't exist, say, in the 70s and 80s, but by 2003 was possible. You know, a little bit labor-intensive, but it could be done. And you could find SARS-like viruses, coronaviruses, that even had the right kind of specificity to be able to attach to human cells, which the SARS virus needed to change a bit to be able to do. So we knew they were out there, and it was only a matter of, you know, when the next one would get into the human population from bats. And the novel coronavirus we see circulating now is one that had not been found earlier, but it's just like all the others that had been found that look very much like SARS. Uh, this is different because it spreads pretty efficiently from person to person, probably a little better than the flu, whereas the others were not able to spread. They required a little, I, I won't say assistance, but you know, uh, lapses in infection control, for example, within the hospital setting or, or other types of close contact with uh, infected um, aerosols, people coughing, sneezing right next to a family member. And so it didn't really spread very much. This one's very different. But in between, there was another coronavirus called MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which was first identified in 2012 and is still going on. And very notoriously, in... Um, the late spring of 2015, one person came from uh, the Gulf states. Uh, he went around the um, the, the Gulf, uh, so places like um, Qatar and Saudi Arabia and some of those other places. Came. He was a Korean businessman, so he came to South Korea, and and triggered actually. Um, uh, well over, I think it was 135 cases, all within essentially healthcare settings, other people who are in the same room, healthcare workers, and so on, and that, and with a number of deaths, because MERS, unlike SARS, has a case fatality rate that approaches about 40 percent. So this new one, you know, at least seems to have a much lower case fatality rate. That's not something to be complacent about, though. I always worry about complacency. So 
it looks, you know, in some ways it behaves more like the flu, but we don't have any experience with this, and all the experiences we've had, like SARS, have been bad ones, so, you know, it's, we're obviously reacting. Actually, I think it's quite fascinating that for the first time ever, we're actually trying, the global public health community and the global community, really trying to stop the infection from spreading essentially in the early stages. Too late, unfortunately, for China, where it started in Wuhan, mm-hmm. probably in the live animal mar- one live animal market or another, almost certainly originating from a bat, whether it came through some other species, just like the SARS story. But this one spread person to person, and by the time China was able to, to get a handle on it, there was, unfortunately, enough transmission. People moved to other cities It was uh, to visit, or they went back home to other cities, and it had spread throughout China. It was just before the Chinese New Year when people travel. So it had uh, spread to many other cities in China, and of course a few other places. But outside of, of China, which has obviously to to really get this epidemic under control, because it gives you an idea of what it could look like. Uncontrolled, it looks a lot like a flu pandemic, basically. Maybe a little faster moving. But everywhere else, there was really a lot of effort. And by public health standards, this is like lightning fast if you do something in, in a week or something like that. Not soon enough, but soon enough to, to keep the number of cases in other countries very low so far. And we hope it'll stay that way and and not spread further. And that will be a remarkable thing because we have never tried to do that with any respiratory virus infection. In theory, I've argued, we could do this with influenza pandemics, but people, if we find the earliest cases, and we have succeeded with some of those pandemics in finding early cases, you could stop the chain of transmission and it wouldn't go any further. At any point, you could break a local chain of transmission simply by finding some of the cases, infected individuals and their contacts, and you only need to prevent about 50 or 60% of the transmission uh, by you know, the mathematics of the transmission to be able to stop the epidemic with influenza. This coronavirus would take a little more effort, but this is the first time we've actually tried to do it. Nobody ever tried to do it with flu pandemics, probably because they thought it was too hard, or maybe we just took flu too much for granted. But I think it's very interesting. We're going to learn a lot, and unfortunately, you know, from some of these efforts, unfortunately, we didn't really learn the lessons from SARS. We knew there were other viruses out there waiting for their opportunity, and really maybe even better primed them than SARS to infect humans. And they were, there were many of them, so it wasn't a question of if, as with flu pandemics, it was a question of when. And we should have probably had more on the shelf ready to go. A vaccine would have taken a while because the SARS vaccine would not work for this one, even though they're closely related, they're different enough. But it would help you to understand how to make such a vaccine quickly. And luckily, we do have a few antiviral agents that right now look, look very promising and can be tested. In part, some of those were actually made because of the Ebola epidemic, where they didn't work very well, but they have 
excellent activity against the coronaviruses. So, you know, we, we may be a little better off, but the one lesson we learned probably from SARS was to take this seriously enough after we saw what was happening in China to try to prevent its, its spread to other places. And that's a lot of work for yeah. public health. You identify those who are infected, trace all their contacts, and try to isolate, that is, you know, put people who are known to be infected, we do have a test now, or if, you know, it looks like they came from one of the places where they might have been in contact with people or situations where they could have gotten infected, uh, you would, you would, you know, and maybe they have some symptoms. You would isolate them, put them under conditions. Maybe even at home, if they're very, if they're not very sick, you know, where they won't come in contact with other people and can't spread it on. Then you find all of those other. Uh, contacts, everyone else who was on the same plane, and try to test them and identify if they too might be infected, and if they are, you isolate them. If not, you keep an eye on them and, uh, you know, make sure that, that they're not infected. So that's a very labor-intensive and resource-intensive process, uh, which is probably why we don't do it routinely, but it's interesting to see this being done now. Yeah. So... Related to that topic about you know preventing the spread of such diseases, like what are some examples of global health policies that could be instituted to prevent these epidemics from? Well, I think one of the things that you know everybody talks about travel restrictions, and the politicians like it a lot more than people in public health. This is one of the few cases where you know probably it would actually be useful with the that is with the novel coronavirus, and where it's actually worked to some degree. But with most other infections, that doesn't generally help because by time you start instituting any kinds of travel restrictions, you know, it's already fairly widespread and it only encourages people to, to uh, try to go around the system and find some other way. So, you know, I think that one thing can be done is, is just simple preventive measures such as we advise people for the flu, good hygiene. You know, if you're sick, stay home. It, with a respiratory infection, stay home, cover your coughs and sneezes if you have a respiratory infection, uh, use good hand hygiene, that means wash your hands, especially if you've just covered your cough or sneezes, wash your hands, but of course every other time it's appropriate, and that's a good thing to do for many infections. Uh, I think we should be looking more carefully at the food supply. Many of the live animal yeah. markets in, in Asia and in other parts of the world, all over you know, much of, of the world, uh, can't easily be controlled, but we can encourage people to use more hygienic measures, like washing their hands, maybe um, using gloves if they can't wash their hands, but then they have to wash the gloves, because masks and gloves can give you a false sense of security. So we can do a lot there, and obviously we can also develop better early warning systems. One of the things that some colleagues and myself did about 25 years ago was to start something called ProMed, the Program for Monitoring Emerging Diseases. And the idea was to network about 60 facilities, laboratories, public health agencies, and, and other places around the world, uh, like the Noguchi Memorial Laboratory um, in, in uh, Ghana, 
the uh, Ivanovsky Institute of Virology in Moscow, uh, and a number of others all over the world, about 60 of them, to try to uh, be able to identify with the technology then available something that seemed unusual and report it quickly so that it could then, then be followed up and we could work together to follow it up. As a result of that, it became clear that nobody was able to communicate with each other by the same methods. Russia had, had fax machines, but they couldn't afford fax paper. The, um, in Ghana, we had to use uh, another method, which is like a, a telegram called Telex, which probably, I don't even know if it exists anymore. So we decided to get everyone on, e on email, which back in the early 1990s was a very painful process. Mm -hmm. Some of these laboratories actually had to rely on another nonprofit organization that had satellites going over uh, the world where we could um, uh, call Satellife. And it was a wonderful idea, and they could actually uh, do email twice a day for half an hour, back and forth. So, you know, now of course we take it for granted, the whole yeah. World Wide Web, and it's changed. So we have better capabilities now. We can do on our phones, our smartphones, things that were literally impossible for us to do in terms of disease reporting and outbreak reporting. You know, so the capabilities are there. So early warning and, and responding appropriately. You know, it's not enough to have early warning if you don't respond. So with the novel coronavirus, the most recent example, you know, there were some early warnings from some physicians. Sadly, one of them, a very heroic one, uh, died just, just yesterday, just the other day. And if they had listened to him, in, instead of, you know, obviously uh, it was embarrassing, so at the local level they, they didn't want to know about it, I think. And that's understandable. There's always a little bit of initial denial with any new infection. But if they had listened and started to control it, it might not have spread as far in China. We don't know because it spreads fairly easily mm -hmm. and people have a lot of these cities, Wuhan with over 11 million people or something like that, New Bay yeah. perhaps with 15 or 16. There's a lot of population density and a lot of population movement for people to sp spread something easily, especially, especially things that can spread person to person. So, you know, I think we can do a lot more with preventive measures, with early warning, and then responding appropriately. And this is the first time we've actually seen with the novel coronavirus an attempt to do some of those things. We obviously can have better new vaccine technologies. And uh, for the flu virus vaccines, for example, people talk about a universal vaccine, but until about 10 years ago, we were using very antiquated methods for making flu vaccines, mm -hmm. uh, growing them in eggs and then purifying the one protein we wanted to use in the um, in the vaccine from each of the flu viruses we included in the vaccine. That's a very uh, slow and expensive and labor-intensive procedure. This can now be done with recombinant technology much faster, and there's one flu vaccine on the market that is being made by recombinant technology, but it took a long time. So hopefully we'll understand that some of these newer technologies can be pressed into service, not only to report, but also, you know, and identify infections, get their 
genetic sequences and then find sequences that you can use to make a vaccine and express it in a system where you can make a vaccine quickly. We're still on the learning curve there, but I'm hopeful we'll get better at it. And there's a lot that individuals can do. I mentioned, you know, washing your hands, covering your coughs and sneezes. If you're handling um, uh, animals or animal um, you know, or fresh meat. Obviously, we know many of the precautions that in the U.S. we've been told, you know, about washing your hands, being careful about how you handle uncooked meat, and washing the utensils that come in contact. That would be a good idea everywhere. It's hard to do. Exactly. Well, it's really promising to hear that there are, we've made a lot of improvements within the past few years, but there's also a lot of room for learning and to refine all these technologies. There is a lot of room for learning, and some of those things, you know, like like the, the, the better, some of the hygienic preca- precautions, washing your hands, being careful with, with uh, food sources and so on, are fairly easy to do. I say it's hard to do just because, you know, not everyone can do it all the time. Hospital infection control, we can see things spreading through hospitals, and that's because of breaches in infection control. So we can improve those things, but those are fairly simple things that could still make a tremendous difference. And, and by the way, you know, we put $6 billion, theoretically at least, into fighting Ebola in 2014, because it took us quite a while to to really uh, act effectively. And then, of course, the governments were, were not very trusted in those conflict areas that had just gone through civil wars. But $6 billion for better water, sanitation, and hygiene could improve a lot of lives, even apart from the infectious diseases. And that's why we take cholera for granted when it used to be a problem here in the 19th century in the U.S., and now we don't even think about it because our water supplies generally have been rendered free of of microorganisms like the one that causes cholera. I wish we could do the same with lead, but I guess we'll get there soon.